Two, one. I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Si- silence the shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or death. Silence the shame. Speak up now and silence. 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 Silence the shame. What's up, everyone? This is Free the Vision. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Silence the Shame podcast. And this is episode 41, the history of mental health in the black community. It was originally done as a webinar by my co-host and founder of Silence to Shame, Shanti Das. And the conversation was so good that we wanted to share it with you guys. So please remember to rate, subscribe, share, and comment. It really does help us and we love hearing from you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and happy Black History Month. Good evening, good evening, good evening. My name is Shanti Das. I am the founder of Silence to Shame Incorporated. We have been in the mental health space for the last three and a half to four years and myself personally as an advocate for over five years. Um, A lot of you know my own story and it's just an honor to still be able to do this work and I bring you greetings and I hope that you and your families are in good health and good spirits and we're going to get into an incredible conversation tonight. Welcome to the history of mental health in the black community. We are doing this to kick off Black History Month. And for those of us in this community, we feel like every month is Black History Month, but we are going to honor February, right? And do it, and, and it's so funny. We might talk a little bit about this, how DE&I is everywhere now. It's, it's the buzz, every corporation is trying to figure out how to be diverse and how to work with more people of color and how to work with us Black folks. But we wanna kick off and really talk about the history of mental health so we can understand it as a people. We know a lot of folks are opening up and sharing and so many of our clinicians have been busy during the pandemic and doing virtual sessions, but what really is the root of mental health in our community? So I wanna start by introducing our panelists. I'll let them share in 30 seconds or less a little bit about their background and then we're gonna dig right in. So ladies first, I would like to welcome my sister friend, uh, I feel like, since my sister passed away in 2019, she she knows when to call me and she is so busy, but she always calls right on time. She's not my therapist, mm. I wish she was. <laughs> but let's welcome Dr. Spirit, who we just fondly call Spirit. Spirit, it's welcome. Spirit. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Hey, everybody. I saw everybody was like, hey. <laughs> So real quick, yeah, it is just spirit. Yet I'm a doctor of psychology. I'm a licensed professional counselor with a group practice uh, based out of Atlanta, Georgia. All of that stuff is super great. Um, But, you know, the main thing is just I consider myself to be a mental health expert. This is really about being able to come to really be able to educate us, to talk to us about who we are, where we are, what it is that we want, and how we make our lives better. So, you know, with no more to do. Let's get into it. Awesome, awesome. Well, welcome again. Next up, we have Dr. Nadia Richardson from No More Martyrs. And we got to know each other maybe two years ago now, I think. It's been a few years now. We've worked on a couple yeah, projects. And, uh, I'm just so in awe by uh, <laughs> her brilliance. She's such a smart, 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 yes, you know you are. Incredibly <laughs> smart and so much knowledge around this space with mental health and, and particularly Black women. And so I'm just happy to share this space with you again, my sister, and, and can't wait for us to do more and collaborate in the future. Let's welcome Dr. Nadia Richardson. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Shanti. You know, every time you call, I'm going to pick up. 
So tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Richardson. Sure. So I'm the founder of No More Martyrs. It's a mental health awareness campaign that seeks to build a community of support for Black women and girls. Um, we look at mental health throughout the United States, but also overseas. We've been able to travel to Brazil and explore mental health as it's experienced through Black women there and visiting some mental health facilities there and doing some digital storytelling there. Um, and we host an annual conference um, that has traditionally been known as the National Minority Mental Health Awareness Summit, but this year it will be known as the Beyond Biopic Mental Health Awareness Summit. Um, and I just enjoy the work, you know, I'm a university professor, interdisciplinary researcher, all of that really great stuff that Dr. Spirit mentioned as well that, you know, we do in our profession. And I think people think that our hearts gravitates towards the work that we do because of our backgrounds. But I'm a black woman who identifies as uh, living with a diagnosis. I am diagnosed as bipolar two. And I talk about this from a research perspective, but I also talk about it from a real life lived experience. Um, and so I connect and get to uh, as much out of our community of support through No More Martyrs as I feel like I, I'm able to put into it. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, my queens. Uh, we mm -hmm. honor and salute you and thank you again for being on here. And last but not least, our king, Dr. Von Gay, who is a friend, a longtime friend of Silence of Shame. And you've seen him on our podcast episodes and heard him at community conversations. And he just does so much to support our efforts. And it really is a collaborative spirit uh, between his practice and our organization. And he recently received his doctorate last year. And we're just so proud of him and just the work that he does. He now has his private practice. So welcome, welcome, King Dr. Vaughn Gay. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Shanti, I appreciate that. And uh, once again, I appreciate you having me on this panel and with these two esteemed guests as well. Um, Dr. Gay, uh, Doctor of Social Work and Licensed Professional Counselor. Uh, I feel like I've been in this field of mental health for a very long time now, uh, almost 15, actually 16 years, uh, going back to when I was working in the group homes uh, while I was an undergrad, uh, working with underrepresented populations, uh, young black men that uh, had a lot of uh, behavioral and emotional disorders, uh, but we really weren't sure what to kind of call that and how to package it and how to treat it. So um, now I'm the executive director of Holistic Atlanta, which uh, has actually morphed from a mental health private practice now to a, a healthcare entity where we'll be adding additional mo uh, medical modalities. And we leverage technology and virtual health uh, to increase access to our services uh, to underrepresented populations. So uh, like uh, Spirit said, you know, a mental health expert, you know, I really have been chomping at the bit to get into this conversation. I know everyone that's joining us here tonight, um, you know, it's going to have open ears what we have to say. So thank you again. Thank you, thank you. So let's jump right in. Uh, I want to read a small blurb from an article published in 2019, and I apologize if I get the doctor's name wrong, from Dr. Yuchenna Ume, a former San Antonio, Texas physician. And I quote, mental illness has been in existence as long as humans have inhabited the earth, but for the people of African descent, little or no references are available about this condition before the 1700s. In 1848, John Gall, a physician and medical director of the Eastern Lunatic Asylum in Williamsburg, Virginia, offered that Blacks are immune to mental illness. Gall hypothesized that enslaved Africans could not develop mental illness because as enslaved people, they did not own property, engage in commerce, or participate in civic affairs such as voting or holding office. This immunity hypothesis assumed, according to Galt and others at the time, that the risk of lunacy would be highest in those populations who are emotionally exposed to the stress of profit-making principality, wealthy white principality and wealthy white men. 
based on this blurb that I just read, Dr. Gay, can you give us some context on how mental health in Black people was addressed during this time of slavery? Because that was just quite absurd. Right. So when we start to, to you know, dissect that and un unpack exactly the setting, the time of where we're at and who was in control, who was in power, who was running the institutions, uh, we're looking at the, the early 1800s. Uh, the antebellum uh, period before the Civil War. So during this time, um, you know, there was really a dichotomy in, in terms of the thinking of uh, slavery, right? You had those that were in support of slavery and those that were against it. A lot of the doctors during that time, um, and it was really important for us to understand how wealthy the South was and how prominent the South was on a global stage. And so a lot of the physicians that we will kind of talk about this evening, a lot of them are highly recognized physicians to this day uh, in the South. And so even as Dr. Galt uh, you know, was speaking in, in the early 1800s about um, you know, slaves, uh, what it is he said, uh, they were immune to mental illness. And he was in Virginia. Uh, you had uh, Dr. Cartwright that was down in Louisiana that uh, coined the term uh, drapetomania. Essentially, he said that uh, slaves that wanted to run away from the plantation uh, had a mental illness. That was what their diagnosis was. What was like, that name again? Uh, drapetomania. Okay. Uh, it's a term that is very widely known as there have been books that have been written on it. And there's a direct connection uh, to Dr. Cartwright down in Louisiana. And I've even spoken about, uh, you know, my personal, you know, quote unquote favorite, uh, Dr. Bryce, Dr. Peter Bryce down in, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, and there is a huge um, elevation of him at the University of Alabama. There's a road named after him and a medical school as well, or a medical building named after him. And Dr. Bryce, uh, during this time, he noted uh, there was an individual that he was working with, a former slave that came into his uh, care during that time. And he was actually seen as a progressive because he actually worked with uh, former slaves, worked with black people. And he was providing treatment on this gentleman. And he noted that black people, that former slaves could not deal with the actual conditions of having to take care of themselves, to provide food and nourishment for themselves and to raise their families. And so he actually said that freedom was a health concern for free blacks, for, for formerly enslaved blacks. And so again, as you're looking at this time, this is actually the, the time of, of innovation in medicine through uh, ex experimentation as well. So you look at that, we identify these individuals uh, essentially operating from a code of white supremacy. And we often talk about uh, where the police officers got their uh, origination from, but we really don't understand the connection between the medical field and the history of medicine, how black bodies and black minds have been the lab subjects um, for medical schools, uh, and definitely uh, even here in Georgia, you have a lot of medical schools and a lot of medical programs that benefited off of that time. So that's to kind of frame the conversation a little bit. We had uh, white supremacy ideology that was essentially saying that black people either could not, you know, have a mental illness, or they were misdiagnosing that and saying that the appropriate uh, treatment for that was for them to be placed back on the plantations. Wow. Would you, uh, Spirit, or Dr. Richardson like to add to that? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking as he kind of like went through the list, one of the others that we can't forget is uh, the psychiatrist who's known as the father of psychiatry, Benjamin Rush. And this was a, an individual who actually was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Mm. And he said that black folks suffered from something called negritude, which was a form of leprosy. And the only cure for negritude was to become white. So what we have to understand when we talk about scientific racism, we talk about racism and systemic racism within the medical community, but we don't usually have these conversations about mental health 
And we have to recognize that it was no different. And unfortunately, we have not had a reckoning. We have not had conversations. And even so many clinicians of color, we do not know the history of our relationship with mental health and wellness, because these are not the types of, of common pieces of information that are taught as we enter into the field. So until we understand the reckoning, until we can look at decolonizing mental health, until we can really look at what it means to talk about mental health and wellness specifically as it relates to communities of color, we will not, not just not understand the disconnect for us as clients entering into the mental health field, but also what it means for us to be clinicians and also what it means to be a minority group within a group of clinicians. So there's an uphill battle that we're facing that we may not even understand today that is currently shadowing the context of mental health and wellness for all of us. Absolutely, it seems like we need to have more textbooks, right? For our clinicians as they're in training written by folks that look like us. So we can truly mm. tell the story and, and rewrite some of this history. Uh, before I go on, did you want to say anything, Dr. Richardson? No, so I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think the racism that we're seeing, the structural racism that we're seeing embedded in all the uh, professional backgrounds of all the individuals that were listed is just a reflection of what's going on in our society. And I know we talk about it historically. I know we talk about it in the 1800s, but I can tell you now that diversity training, implicit bias training, culturally responsive care curriculum is not something that's typically in the required curriculum for medical school. It's not always in the required curriculum for becoming a licensed mental health professional. It's not even always required in your ongoing CEU training that you're required to maintain once you're licensed. So really just up, up, uprooting all of those things and saying, no, this shouldn't be an elective. This shouldn't be some kind of side curriculum that you offer. If you're really trying to train individuals to be culturally responsive and really trying to dismantle the structural racism that exists in these fields. You have to acknowledge this work and acknowledge the um, status and level of the individuals that were named, like um, Dr. Cartwright. You know, he was a he was a psychiatrist, a, a provider out of Louisiana, but he also worked for General Andrew Jackson, and we all know he went on to be the seventh president of the United States. You know what I'm saying? So these weren't people who were always like in the background doing different work. These were individuals who rose in status and were considered experts in their field at the time. And um, our, our structure in regards to our medical foundations acknowledged them as that. They patted them on the back for the work that they contributed rather than calling them to task, which they wouldn't because at the time, racism was the call of the day. Hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. We got to call folks out. I think this is 2021. And that's what it's all about and, and helping to rewrite history. I want to read another blurb. Um, it says um, African-Americans were also victimized by psychosurgery from the 1930s to the 1960s, a process of surgically removing parts of the brain, a lobotomy, to treat mental illness. Started in Europe, it quickly gained acceptance in the US for reasons that were finally ruled as sociopolitical rather than medical by the late 1970s. Psychosurgery was promoted as a treatment for brain dysfunction, a diagnosis claimed to have led to widespread urban violence and inner city uprisings. While most historians and social scientists viewed urban violence and the uprisings of the 1960s um, and a reaction to systemic oppression, poverty, discrimination, and state-sponsored physical violence, police brutality, Dr. Frank Irvine, or Irvin, a psychiatrist and two neurosurgeons, Dr. Drs. Vernon Mark and William Sweet, 
argued into the 1960s that this violence was a result of a surgically treatable brain disorder and promoted their agenda as a specific contribution to ending the political unrest of the period. While never widely accepted in practice, some lobotomies were performed, and this is horrible, on black children as young as five years old who exhibited aggressive or hyperactive behaviors. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, Spirit or Dr. Gay, I'll go, I'll go to you, Spirit, next. Can you talk about um, the absurdity of psychosurgery and lobotomies in the Black community during that specific time period? Yeah, well, I think it's important uh, to note, though, Shanti, like you said, that this was something that was happening all over the world, but it was unique in how and why it was happening to us, especially during that time period. So context matters. So when we're talking about this, you have to remember that this is during a time also when Black men were being overdiagnosed with schizophrenia. And, you know, and still to this day, there we are overrepresented, our Black men are overrepresented with that diagnosis, while at the same time being underrepresented with diagnoses for post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and a host of mood disorders. So what happened during this time, you're talking about the civil rights era, and they actually considered protesting and being part of the civil rights movement a mental illness back then. They actually had a name for it. It was called protest psychosis. And see, and again, this... This is things that we don't know because the history books have not been written to include our history. It has been whitewashed. So you look at, you know, the the power of the the daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and the way that they were able to come in and control the amount of information that has been pumped through using propaganda through public school systems. We haven't heard these stories. So we don't know that protest psychosis, it was about delusional anti-whiteness. These are the kinds of things that they said that came from aligning yourself with black power organizations like the Black Panthers or with the Nation of Islam. They literally thought that this was a form of psychosis. And so what they said is if we can literally perform lobotomies and go in and take out that prefrontal cortex, which by the way, is the part of your brain that's responsible for judgment, the part of your brain for understanding morality and all these other things, basically what they wanted to do was make black men passive. Right, because what they said is black men had anger issues. They were anti-white. They were angry. And what we need to do is basically just go in and make them calmer. So through surgery, through electroshock therapy, through chemical therapies, through hospitalization, where a lot of times even in these hospitals when they institutionalized our men and women, they were employed with unlicensed doctors who would administer these electroshock treatments and chemical therapies in order to basically subjugate black people. You know, because if you scramble somebody's brain, Shanti, you control the brain, you could the body's gonna go wherever the brain is. And so again, until we really understand these relationships that we have, then it will make sense why black people have been taught and conditioned that mental health is not for you. This is how we get to black people don't have mental health issues. And if something is wrong, then you better go to Jesus. You better pray about it. You don't go to the white man who is still overrepresented in the mental health community. You know, I think it's something like 82 to 86% of our community or our profession is still uh, white men and women, which let's not say that everybody is racist, but let's also say that we all have biases. We all come out of the same history. And a lot of this history, we don't know or understand. And so there's a huge disconnect. There is fear and it's rightful fear. And then that fear isn't honored. It's not validated. It's not reckoned with. It's not healed. And so all of that shows up in the therapy room 
room when somebody is trying to deal with their own mental health issues in addition to the intergenerational trauma that's been passed down year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. I mean, it, it, it just, I don't know about y'all that's listening, but thank you all so much just for enlightening us. It is so disheartening, you know, just to know this history, but it's so important that we tell this history. I hope we can take this conversation, you know, farther than just this Zoom chat tonight. I hope we can take it across the world and continue to, to educate and teach our brothers and sisters about the history of it. Dr. Gabe, do you want to add anything to that? You know, absolutely. And, and you know, that time period before what uh, Spirit was talking about in the civil rights era, you know, one thing that we do not talk about that's kind of been, been washed away from history is the whole eugenics movement, right? So there was a an overarching ideology and not just held by white people, held by very prominent black people as well. And people that will actually surprise you if you really want to pay attention and dig through history. Uh, the eugenics movement was just this idea that we could create the perfect person. And really white America wanted to create the perfect race, right? And so if you look at, you know, the psychologists and the scientists and the physicians that were working in the 19-teens, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, and where this ideology came from, you can actually make some direct connections between what they were studying back then and the whole Nazi movement over in Germany in the 1940s. And so, you know, this stuff is actually really deep. And, um, you know, just in terms of what Spirit was talking about, um, you know, those, those electroshock therapies and the lobotomies where they actually just drill into your brain you know, and rearrange some of those brain tissues. And of course, the, the fallout from that was just, uh, you know, damage done across the board, regardless of, of uh, race or gender. But also they had things called hydrotherapy, um, where they would just immerse you in water, you know, and just literally like put your body in a state of shock to kind of examine your brain. And also um, the, the insulin therapies where they would, uh, they would allow your blood sugar to drop to zero and cause you to have seizures and then study exactly how your brain and, and body would react from that. So, uh, like I said, the experimentation age of medicine, um, you know, and again, it, can, it just go, it goes across any medical specialty, uh, mental health, um, OBGYN, the horror stories from that, pediatrics. So, um, you know, this is something we, the unpacking of the relationship between black people in the field of medicine, again, I have to reiterate that it is very deep and it was always um, supplemented, you know, with the, by the American government and they were very complicit in a lot of this as well. And so this leads me into my next question. Dr. Richardson, why is, under, why is an understanding of history important right now as we talk about mental health and what we're going through as African-Americans? We've heard so much and it's still so much more to learn and unpack and I hope all y'all get together and write a book about it and publish it because we will all buy it. But it, I think it's just so important that we as African-Americans understand the history of mental wellness and why, you know, the stigma is still there because of, look how we were treated, right? We were never even meant to get real treatment and, and just the absurdities of the excuses that they placed on, you know, why we acted this way or that way. It, it had nothing to do with our emotions and our feelings. Absolutely. I think, you know, just to answer your question, the reason important for us to understand the history of this is because we are living with the remnants of this. We are living in the results, the disparities that we are experiencing in regards to black mental health is tied to all of the things that have been mentioned tonight. When we talk about the protest psychosis, and I know there are a few people in the comment section that were like, whoa, I've never heard about that. There's a great book by John Metzl called The Protest Psychosis. And he goes into a lot of detail about how this came about and the social um, context in which it happened. And just to really tie this back again to how we are living history the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is used um, for diagnosing mental illness, 
they acknowledged the protest psychosis in 1968. So they didn't dismiss it as just some kind of off the wall idea. They acknowledged it, wrote it in there, wrote in what, what wrote up what the symptoms might look like and how to diagnose this. Um, and it's also tied to other disparities. And let me go back a second. I don't know how, how old everybody is on this panel, but 1968 is just 10 I'm years through. before I can, you know, 1968 is not that long ago. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, that's just 10 years that's before fair. I arrived on the planet. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's not that long ago. So we can, so when we're talking about Cartwright and the 1800s and all of these different things. These are disparities that are more recent. There are disparities that are much more recent. Um, and then just to tie it back to things that we see now, the criminalization of mental illness, right? Because with the protest psychosis, you're right, individuals, mostly black men at this time, were arrested because of this. They were um, institutionalized in mental health facilities. So if you read that book John Metzl wrote, um, he talks about, he really follows the history of a particular mental health facility and watches how it goes from almost predominantly um, occupied by white women to almost entirely occupied by black men. And this is why it's so important for us to look at the, the socio-cultural, historical, and political context of what was going on that time. Because the DSM signed off on all of that. They said it was absolutely valid. They said it was medical. They said it was justified. And, and this is another example of how our pain can be pathologized in the wrong way. How are you going to tell me I'm crazy for fighting against injustice? How are you going to tell me I'm crazy for rebelling and becoming politically in involved in fighting for the freedom of my community and I'm crazy? But Samuel Cartwright said the same thing in 1800, right? If he said you ran away from your plantation, well, you are, you are turning away from the natural order of things. So there must be something wrong with you. You want your freedom. That's not what you were put here for. And that's another thing in all of this. We were never acknowledged as people. Mm. During dreptomania time, during um, Cartwright's time, we were stock, we were property. This is well, also they, why they, doctors- of a person is what they called it. Right. Oh, yes. Listen, we were, that's how we were, we were maintained. If you look at the records, where do you find slaves mentioned? They weren't mentioned in the house. They were mentioned right out there with the stock and other forms of property. And this is why individuals like Dr. Sims, who is considered the father of gynecology, right, was able to come in and do experiments and surgeries on Black female slaves, right, without any consideration to their pain, because our pain is not acknowledged. But that's historic, right? But fast forward to now, today, currently, where studies are coming out that says Black people's pain are not acknowledged, right? That medical professionals don't acknowledge our pain, so we have to fight and advocate for ourselves. This is another reason why other studies are coming out that saying having a position that looks like you has already been correlated to being better served and getting better care and having better health outcomes. And that's not to say that if you're not Black, um, that you're going to be racist in the, in the, in, in the patient-doctor relationship. However, how are the medical schools training you to do otherwise? How are they training you to be culturally responsive? That's not happening. Um, so this is all, I think the reason it's important for us to understand history is because a lot of times what I've seen is individuals jump into the mental health advocacy space and they want to start with where we are oh, there are all these disparities. Oh, there's all this misunderstanding. Oh, there's all of these things. But you can't start there without figuring out where it came from. And you have to go back and acknowledge all of that pain, 
all of that injustice, all of that inequity for you to be able to effectively provide mental health advocacy. That's why for me, it was a good start. Not where we're gonna, we're not gonna end the conversation here, but it was a good start for the American Psychiatric Association to release their statement just last month where they apologize for the structural racism that's embedded in the field of psychology, psychiatry. That's a start that just came out 2021. They just made this statement where they're acknowledging that the way they've been treating biopic individuals has been in unjust. It's been inequitable. It's tied and rooted to history. I believe that's a great start. Now advocacy says, what are you gonna do about it? So all of this conversation that we're having around history is to acknowledge these things, but now what are we gonna do to do the work? That is what decolonizing mental health also means for me. It's like acknowledging this, having the conversations, defining these things for ourselves, defining what wellness looks for ourselves, tying it back to some of our own cultural um, ideas and concepts that are intergenerational, that are tied to our connections to Africa and African culture. That's why this is also a part of the conversation as well. Uh, and Shanti, if I could just kind of just put a, a layer of icing on this, only thing that we have talked about so far is people who were already seeking care because they were dealing with mental illness coming to get care. We're talking about trauma inflicted on someone who is already traumatized. That's why they were coming to the system, right? If I'm coming to get health care, it's because I'm not well. So the only thing that we're talking about is someone who's already not well being further wounded by a system while they're seeking wellness. And I think it's important for us to understand that because we haven't even talked about the trauma that someone is already experiencing when they're in need, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think Resma Minikim, if that's how you say his name correctly, I think he said it so well because if we don't contextualize the trauma the right way we misunderstand it so one of the things that he said he said you know trauma decontextualized in a person looks like personality right when something is wrong with somebody we don't recognize it to be trauma we think that that's who they are when we look at trauma decontextualized within a family we think it's family traits and then when we see trauma in a people it looks like culture so when we start to look at black people, when we look at indigenous people, when we look at Hispanic people or the Latino community, and we're saying what's wrong with this group culturally, we have to understand the trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. We never get to the healing as individuals. We never get to our personal pain. We never get to the biochemical issues that we need responded to because we're being further traumatized by the systems that should be in place to actually heal us but they were never intended to be that. And now we're having to sell people on something that they've learned a long time ago we're here to cause them harm. Mm, mm. I hope y'all are enjoying this as much as I am. Whew, uh, if you are, give me some thumbs up in the chat room. Let me know y'all are here there with us. Time is now 7.35, a bit of housekeeping. Um, someone asked in the Q&A, um, if I would provide the name and author of the article that I started with from the introduction, if you go to our website, silencershame.com, it's actually on the homepage at the bottom under news and notes, and you can read that um, entire article. This is an incredible conversation. I want to keep it going. Um, a little bit kind of what we're already talking about, right, um, from a cultural perspective. Uh, historically, we've seen how socioeconomic issues impact Black mental health. Also, there are longstanding cultural issues that impact our ability to process and treat mental illness in our community. 
Spirit and Dr. Gay, and I'll go to you, Dr. Gay, and back to Spirit. Can you talk about how both socioeconomic and cultural issues play a huge part of mental health in the Black community, continuing on our conversation, you know, from what happened through, um, from slavery till now? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so Spirit really kind of hit it on the head, you know, really kind of pinpointing how um, this thing impacts us on an individual level, and then on a secondary level, and then on a tertiary level within our culture. Um, you know, I always say that everybody that's Black needs to be getting individual therapy, but then our culture needs therapy as well. You know, we need therapy in terms of our approaches to dating, our approaches to money and finances, our approaches to raising our children, right? Uh, we are of sound mind and sound body, but I feel like culturally, as we're going through this growth process, there's a lot of discomfort and a lot of confusion in terms of what it is that we can be and what it is that we should be. So um, when you're looking at you know, how socioeconomic factors have had an impact on the mental health, um, being born in 84, I always have been fascinated with what was going on with the, uh, the black men during that time, uh, with my father, you know, my uncles, et cetera. Uh, you know, we really don't understand how crack cocaine was really like chemical warfare on our community, you know, and that decimated uh, the community, not just, you know, from the, the addiction standpoint, but from how they removed individuals from their families and then from their jobs, the communities, and then also society, right? You know, um, also things like, uh, you know, uh, economic forces, you know, when, when America has a, a huge impact, when there's a huge impact on the economy in America, uh, you know, whenever white America catches the cold, we catch the flu. So, you know, a number of individuals have lost jobs um, through different, different economic uh, periods. And it's often difficult for um, black and brown people to be able to find new employment or for black and brown owned businesses to be able to have the funding and the equity to reestablish themselves. And so there's a direct correlation between us, especially with men, you know, um, lack of economic opportunity or lack of being able to provide and uh, depression, right? Uh, substance abuse, uh, negative uh, coping mechanisms. So when we're looking at socioeconomic factors, it's really from a public health standpoint. And those social determinants of health do have an impact on our mental health. And when we don't have that, that network or that system already built in place for us to be able to go to providers that look like us and have similar experiences and are within our communities and you know have uh, we have resources to do that when we don't have that avenue then that's when you know us as individuals we spiral out of control in our families our communities and in our culture you know um, as a result absolutely thank you yeah, you know, I think that it's a comprehensive issue. It's taken us since the inception of our country to get to where we are now. It's going to take a lot longer to even find solutions if those solutions are not only to be found, but also to be applied. So I think that we have to look at what is going to be the most realistic approach. We have millions of people who are suffering right now, who need help right now. There are not enough clinicians of color. That is just the reality, which means that if 80% of clinicians are, uh, are, are uh, not people of color, then we're going to have to put a demand on the system. We're going to have to put requirements on the system because the real deal is we need more help than what we can offer. You know, and so what we have to figure out is how do we educate the system? How do we uphold the system? How do we make sure that those requirements are in place? But also, how do we serve as the megaphones? How do we serve as the advocates? How do we continue to educate the communities about finding clinicians who will be the right fit for them? How do we look at making sure that the next generation of mental health professionals are being groomed? How do we make sure that those course curriculums are in place? How do we make sure legislation 
legislatively that we're advocating for the right civil rights? How do we look at uh, mental health being a public health crisis and making sure that our legislators and our medical community know how to be responsive to that? So I think it's a multifaceted approach. We need to have more conversations. We need to have more think tanks, but we also need to think pragmatically about this. It would be incredible to say cultural competency is the thing, and clearly that's the buzzword today. But the real deal, when you look pragmatically about numbers, the numbers simply aren't there. So while we're trying to have impact, what do we do with the millions of people who are suffering every day right now? How do we work to instill uh, trust? How do we work to instill education? But not just talk about mental health awareness. How do we ensure that resources are there? Because if we keep screaming mental health awareness, but there are no resources behind that, what is the good and sound in the alarm that, yes, you may have anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, but you have no way to access care. You have no way to access medication. You have no way to get to a provider to even figure out if you are clinically uh, need uh, diagnoses, right? So we have all of this work to do. So we have to be sounding the alarm. We have to have a call to action, but we also have to hold ourselves accountable and we have to hold one another accountable. We have too many people who are in this field who see this as a job and not as a passion. They are looking for a paycheck. They are not healers. How do we root them out? How do we hold individuals accountable who are teaching coursework where we're not represented or we are misrepresented? How do we begin to attack the system and make sure that we are rebuilding and recreating a new system all at the same time? And it's heavy. We won't get it all done in this lifetime, but we have to work tirelessly to get it done and also to get it done together. Because the other part of this is that too many of us are operating in silos as well. We've been taught that having a private practice is the holy grail and I really think that that's about trying to keep us apart rather than together so what happens is one clinician is working over here toiling away while another one is working over here toiling away they never connect they never magnify they never grow and both of their practices fall apart which means all the people that could be serviced never are so how do we continue to work collectively to not just sound the alarm but change the system, change the, change the tide, move the needle. Can I just say, I just gotta take a second and, and breathe. Um, what you said is why we do the work that we do yeah. uh, at Silence to Shame. And for, for, you know, for the last, what, three and a half years, I know people saw Silence to Shame come in, like who is this little tiny organization? But it was the passion. It was the passion for me wanting to take my own life. It was a passion for me not understanding why my um, dad took his own life. It was a passion for my other family member who, you know, violently attacked another family member and been living with bipolar one disorder and trying to help our community. And when I tell y'all that these clinicians and and doctors that are on here today, every time I call them, they are here. When I say they're passionate about it. They've been seeing clients all day or they've been teaching all day and they gave up their evenings to share because why because we got to get this information to the people you are so right spirit i'm just so grateful and humbled to be in you guys's presence and i do hope that we can continue i have so many ideas and i'm taking notes and we're going to do so much to continue in this fight to just change the narrative around black mental health um, it is just so, so important. So I'm sorry I had to just get that out. It was on my spirit. I just had to give y'all y'all flowers right now in the middle of this panel because this is so incredible. And and your knowledge, your vast knowledge of this area just, you know, is, is to be commended. 
and we praise you and we appreciate you. Um, well, Shanti, if you're gonna if you're gonna celebrate us, can we celebrate you for bringing this about and bringing us together to do this work? Because I am encouraged because of conversations like this, like all of the work that's been mentioned, it took us 400 plus years to get here. We're not going to dismantle the system and turn all these disparities around overnight. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be work done on multiple levels. It's going to be done by individuals with degrees and it's going to be done with individuals who are in the community and don't have a degree. It's going to be a lot of uh, conversation and collaboration and spaces like this are going to um, get people excited and passionate about doing the work. Thank you. Thank you. I love y'all dearly. So let's talk about Black women for a quick second. Dr. Richardson, mm. we've seen a lot of research about the mental health costs of being a quote-unquote strong Black woman. Can you explain how this concept of strength is rooted in history? And then I want you to talk about it a little bit, Spirit. And I was watching one of my favorite shows last night, um, Chicago Med, and one of the nurses on there um, she's going through something traumatic with a family member and, you know, essentially the other coworker was like, oh, you got this. And she started crying and she was like, no, why as a black woman do I always have to have this? So let's talk about how that is rooted in history. I mean, it's great that people look to us, but we've been saving the world and still saving elections and the country and everything else and our families and, and doing 10, 11 million things at one time. Like take us through a little bit of the, you know, historical analysis of it to kind of present day? Sure. Um, in regards to just being a strong Black woman, it ties back to a lot of the history that we've already mentioned. In order for Black women and the labor of Black women to be justified, it had they, their humanness and humanity had to be minimized, right? You can't justify if you are a good, upstanding person like Samuel Cartwright, right? If you're somebody who's doing this work, you justify that by saying, well, I'm not harming this person. This person is not valuable. This person has no feeling. Their humanity is lesser than they are doing the work that they've been put here to do. So this idea of being a strong Black woman, it's not something that Black women brought on ourselves. It's something that was put on us, right? This idea that they're stronger. And it was also done in direct conflict to how white women were, were being portrayed, right? If white women are gonna be docile, Black women had to be aggressive. If white women are gonna be weak, Black women had to be strong. If white women are supposed to be intellectual and, and domestic, then Black women are going to have to not be intellectual and domestic, right? They had to be just seen as workhorses, essentially. Um, so really, that's where the concept of being a strong Black woman came about. Then through generations, right? So intergenerational messages that were passed down were that if we're going to persevere through slavery, if we're going to persevere through Jim Crow, if we're going to persevere through sexism, if we're going to persevere through those things, then the message that has then been passed down intergenerationally is that you have to be strong. This is our lot. Our ancestors we, were strong. We always like to use that language too, like we know how many individuals um, who were slaves completely lost their minds or could have been diagnosed at the time. We say that they were strong, yes, and that lineage runs in our blood, great, but there was still harm that was done. There was trauma that was experienced and never addressed because it was never given an opportunity to be addressed. And so now when we think about this concept of the strong black woman, it's strength that we have to essentially it's been, the idea has been internalized that we have to persevere because we still have, when you look at black maternal rates, right? And mortality rates. When you took a look at infant mortality, when you look at the disparities that still exist, you still got to go to work in the morning, right? You still have to wake up and take care of your children and take care of yourself and do these other things. So this idea that you have to be strong. But what I often educate women about and advocate about is why are we so focused on being strong 
rather than questioning the systems that are creating these, uh, these uh, disparities that we have to persevere and be strong against. A lot of the work that No More Martyrs does acknowledges the fact that we have to create environments that foster our mental well-being versus damages it, right? Um, so that's why we're in school board meetings. That's why we talk about economic health. That's why we talk about uh, the criminal justice system, environmental justice. We talk about being politically involved, voting. Maybe you should run for office. We talk about all of these things because all of these things create environments that can either threaten our mental well-being or foster our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. um, so social justice is a part of that. And then a full acknowledgement of just misogynoir, right? This idea that in all of the racism we've been talking about, there was sexism going hand in hand with it, right? When we were talking about dreptomania, there was the work that was being done and the research that was being done and the experimentation that was being done on black female slaves. When we talked about the protest psychosis, when we talked about lumbotomies, when we talked about all of those things, at the same time, there was hysteria. And some of the treatments for hysteria were incredibly invasive, in including and excuse me because there's no other way of saying this, um, inducing orgasm, right? So who was in the room when they decided that in order to treat a woman's mental well-being, they had to induce organ orgasm? And then how exactly were they supposed to do that? They did it with their fingers. They did it with vibrators. They did it with water, right? Really focusing on genitalia because in order to, to tap into what's going on mentally with a woman, and this is where sexism comes in, um, it, it must be connected to her sex, right? Because that's all women were valued for. So in addition to the racism and the sexism, all of these things are, are contribute to this idea of strength. What do you have to persevere against? And that's also a part of the conversation on how we heal, but also how we advance in regards to being able to provide mo uh, mental health services that are whole, holistic, culturally responsive, and, re and truly connect to the intergenerational resilience mm -hmm. of Black women acknowledge that as a positive thing, but also points the finger back to the individuals that are causing their distress. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Richardson. Spirit, would you like to add anything to that? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what I love to tell Black women especially is, you know, just because you carry it well don't mean it ain't heavy. So can we just pause for a minute and acknowledge how heavy it is and let you know that you are still okay? right? And if you can't recognize that it's heavy, it's because you're disconnected from your feelings, which tells me that you're still in survival mode. And so many of us are operating in survival mode. And I want Black women who will tell me all the time, Spirit, I don't have time for a breakdown. I got to pick up the kids at two. I got to get dinner for the husband at three. I got this, I got that. And I'm afraid to connect to my feelings because there's so much in there that if I was to start crying, I would not ever be able to stop. That is the fear. And so what we don't realize is that so many of us are walking around functionally depressed. So many of us are walking around with anxiety. And again, it's not just in our bodies. It is literally physically, chemically in our bodies. These are real issues that we are disconnected from because we are simply just trying to survive. We have been trying to survive literally since we left the African continent. We survived the triangular slave trade. We survived slavery. We have survived 
every last thing that has been thrown at us. And because we have survived it, how most of us have survived it is by being disconnected in our feelings from it. So we've had to use defense mechanisms to rationalize, to justify, to be in denial. That don't hurt. I don't have time. They didn't mean that. Just learn to forgive. Take it to the Lord. Just pray on it. I'll, I'll deal with my, I'll get my reward in heaven. Whatever we have to tell ourselves in order to keep moving on our feet. So a lot of us are physically moving, but we are seeing those health disparities. We have the high blood pressure. We have the diabetes. We have the stroke. We are overweight. We have our blood pressure through the roof and we can't control it. We have our women who are literally dying in their 30s and 40s. We have our disconnected homes. We have our shattered relationships. And I won't even get into the Black Superwoman syndrome, right, where we have literally been conditioned, as we talk about that, that decontextualizing trauma, we have literally been conditioned to be our sister's keeper. So whatever my mother is feeling, I'm feeling. Whatever my girlfriends are feeling, I'm feeling. We can't trust anybody on the outside of us. We are all we have. And often, most of us, even even the ones on here that are on this call, most of us are doing better than those around us. So our one little paycheck is taking care of our mothers and our sisters and our cousins. We're taking care of five houses with the single family paycheck that we have. And if we're lucky enough to be married and tied to a partner, then we're using that, but we still don't have time to deal with the stress and the emotions and the problems and all of those relationships. And that's just what we're dealing with as adults. We won't even get into the childhood trauma that we saw as we're dealing with or not dealing with paternal issues, fatherhood abandonment, motherhood abandonment, uh, depressed and anxious and post-traumatic stress disordered parents raising us, domestic violence, uh, substance abuse that we've outlived, child sexual abuse, and all of this other trauma that lives within us that we try to still get up and go and contribute to our society, to love our children, to, to contribute to our churches, to give back to one another. We have so much that we're not dealing with, just dead on our feet which is why us as women and people of color need mental health services more than any other group and are the less likely, the least likely to get it most of the time. Amen. Let the church say amen. Dr. I was, was going to say, I was going to say, we need to let the microphone cool off after that. I mean, one. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's real. Yeah, but y'all are true. I mean, it, it really is almost exhausting at times. When you it is. And sleep won't cut it. Like I tell folks, sleep don't cut it if it's your soul that's exhausted. Right. And so a lot of us aren't even getting good rest when we sleep. You know, I, I got my little tracker. Right. I've been looking at my own sleep because as I minister to you, I minister to myself and I go, goodness gracious, I didn't get any deep sleep last night. I'm light sleeping because I'm worried about the kids. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. Most of us don't even realize realize how all of this is just interconnected. Our mental health is connected to our physical health. Our physical health is affecting our mental health. We are stuck in these loops and we are just sick. We are withering and dying. And that's why when they say black don't crack, I love to say, yes, it does from the inside out. We just make it look good. Meanwhile, we're falling apart, but got the red bottoms on, the nails is done, the hair is done to the nines, but we can't even connect to our feelings because if we get in our body and sit still for five Five seconds, we will fall apart and lose our damn minds. It's just the way we're working right now. And we got to do better for ourselves and for the people that we love. Yes, yes black kings and queens. You hear it mm -hmm. firsthand. We've got to do better. All right. So we're on here to about 8.15. So I'm going to keep this going with a couple more questions. And I want to take a few questions from our virtual audience. 
This has all been phenomenal. We're just getting so many great comments. And for those of you that are asking, yes, we are recording this session. It will be up virtually in a couple of days on our Silence to Shame YouTube page, as well as our clinicians will be pushing it out. Um, but this is just a wealth of information and we surely, truly hope to continue this conversation. Um, so as we know, this is Black History Month, and we recently posted on our Silence to Shame Instagram page, the first Black person to receive a PhD in psychology, who was Dr. Frances Sumner. And the first Black psychiatrist in America was Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller. Statistically speaking, I read that the vast majority of mental health treatment providers in the United States are white. And I know you alluded to this uh, earlier, uh, Spirit. For example, approximately 86% of psychologists are white and less than 2% of American Psychological Association members are African-American. We also see the need increasing more for clinicians who are black because some people prefer, you know, clinicians that look like them. We talked about this too, or someone that can culturally relate. Uh, Dr. Gay, what can we do to get more young students to enter the fields of psychiatry and psychology? So I think it's a, uh, it's a little bit of a generational thing uh, to a degree. So right now we are the generation that I guess is bringing this conversation to the forefront in the mainstream. We're hearing about mental health and mental illness every single day. Um, when you're looking at it from a training perspective, uh, you have to actually generate an interest in, in helping our young folks knowing that this is a, actually a viable career that has direct impact on our people. And that's one thing I love about being in session. Every At the end of every single session, I know that I had a direct impact on my client who will then have an improved, uh, you know, emotional response within their homes that's having an impact on their families. So, you know, really kind of creating this, this lane and helping people understand that that therapy and mental health and psychology and psychiatry, it plays out in so many different fields, you know, outside of just, uh, you know, mental health specifically. Uh, psychologists are hired by Fortune 500 companies, uh, Facebook and Google, so that, you know, they can help with advertising companies. Um, you know, in terms of uh, psychotherapists working in, in communities, like Spirit said, we have a lot of uh, private practices, but the way that the future of medicine is going, a lot of those practices are going to have to become conglomerates. And so, understand that there's a business behind it. And then also, uh, you know, we need, you know, our HBCUs, which literally produce a lot of uh, a high percentage of our, you know, um, high level graduates and, and doctors and lawyers, et cetera. We need them to invest in, in mental health programming, whether that's master's degree programs, uh, if that's uh, providing scholarships and funding for, for young folks that want to be able to get into the field, whether it's actually adding academic programs to medical schools that specifically focus on mental health and having courses on uh, multiculturalism and, and even conversation. I mean, the history of mental health in Black America literally should be a course, right? You know, so um, there's a number of different ways that you can look at it. The final thing, actually, uh, you know, once you do get into the field, you know, and you're running a business, you need to be able to keep the lights on as well. And so um, we know, just kind of working with insurance companies or what have you, you know, that we don't necessarily get paid our true value. Um, and even though it's not always about the money, you know, we definitely have to be able to keep, you know, the businesses viable and keep them moving so we can continue to have impact. So working on the policy end, you know, making sure that mental health practitioners that do serve our community are able to uh, receive their just due and their worth. You know, I think that by looking at, you know, having a multi-pronged approach on that, we can really start to see more people that look like us in the field within the next generation. Absolutely. Anybody else want to comment briefly on that? Yeah, if I could add to that, because I've had the uh, fortunate opportunity to have uh, worked and I taught with the medical school and I worked in diversity in medical schools, and there were some absolute challenges 
um, when I came in and asked them about their Black uh, representation of medical students coming in in their incoming classes, it was extremely low at the school that I was uh, working with, but nationally that's the case. Um, getting our young people interested in the field is one aspect of that journey. It's a very important aspect. Acknowledging that inequalities and in access to education is a whole nother thing. There's a lot of work that needs to take place before they even enter a medical school classroom, before they enter a university classroom, right? Um, typically what they say in recruitment office in a medical school is that if you start preparing for medical school in undergrad, you already started too late. You need to start preparing in high school, right? But if um, young people are coming out of high schools that are not preparing them, their dropout rates are high, their college prep courses and AP courses are few and far between. They don't have advisors and counselors that are directing them towards internship opportunities, shadowing opportunities that they should be beginning in high school. Um, then they're not going to be prepared. They're going to they're going to be challenged. They're going to be challenged in regards to be able to pers uh, persist um, through that education. But a lot of that, again, is tied, and this is why it's so deeply embedded in our society, right? A lot of that has to do with school funding. When you look at how schools are still funded and how much um, disparity exists there, when you look at, uh, at the fact that a lot of schools are still funded based off of property tax, but property tax is still tied to um, segregation and its remnants of Jim Crow, right? And redlining and a lot of other things. So we need to look at how schools can be funded more equitably. This is why a lot of young people now um, who have the opportunity and their parents have the opportunity might be exploring is, uh, you know, options like charter schools. And it's unfortunate you feel like you have to go that route. But the thing is, if we are looking at uh, addressing the low numbers of Black providers at the tail end, which is, you know, getting the education, we're missing a really strong opportunity to create a better pipeline, starting with the K through 12 um, community. And that needs to start again with ag advocacy and making sure we have equitable access to, to education and that we're mentoring at that early stage. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can I add one and thing? Would, for the, you know, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Spirit. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Don't forget what you're going to say, though. I got you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I would say, you know, just to piggyback off of that, I really believe it is about reaching that next generation and looking for ways to do that. And, you know, we have to be real. America is a capitalistic society. So if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. So how are we going to get people to buy in? They have to be able to see the value in that. And so for corporate America, they have to understand why mental health and wellness either contributes or takes away from their profit margins. So if they don't understand that if you have somebody who is dealing with mental health issues within their home, even if it's just marriage or relationship issues, absenteeism, productivity, all those things go down, which affect their bottom line. And that goes all the way down right into the school systems. And so supply and demand, we have to start teaching children that mental health and wellness needs to be a basic right. So as they go forward, when they don't have therapists in their schools, well, why don't I? They don't have peer counseling programs in their school. Well, let me go ahead and help to start one. So by the time they come out of elementary school, they go into middle school, there's no peer counseling program here. Where's a teacher who wants to be an advisor so that we can go ahead and set up these programs? So it becomes the norm. So by the time they get into college and they're talking about testing and counseling, they not only see this as a viable profession if that's what they're interested in, but they also become consumers who are invested in their mental health and wellness, which drives up the demand 
for our profession. So where there is a demand, you will continue to see an investment. You will continue to see focus. You will continue to see people orienting themselves to this. That's why, as Dr. Gay was talking about, about seeing the conglomeration and the privatization of mental health and wellness. You have all of these organizations, everybody from BetterHelp to, uh, you know, I can't even think about it. The list just goes on and on, who are now coming together. It's not because they're invested in the mental health and wellness of our societies. It's because they recognize that there's money to be made. And so they say, let me go ahead and get 100 therapists together right here and figure out a way to make a quick couple of million dollars off the backs of these therapists. And so we have to recognize what trends are but also recognize what our power is in that. If we have the power to be able to show up to advocate for ourselves, to advocate for legislation, to advocate for what service needs to look like, then there is power in all of this. And this is how we begin to move the wheel. So what we have to look at as we talk about that multi pronged approach is recognize that not everybody needs to necessarily be a clinician. We need those researchers. We need those professors who are teaching. We need individuals who are uh, in the school systems. We need individuals who understand how Title IV monies work so that you can go to school districts and say, why don't you have a therapist and use Title IV monies in order to take care of your students who are here? We need to have people who understand every aspect of the system. So as soon as we start to understand that mental health and wellness is everything, and everything is mental health and wellness, then we can demand it in every place and space in our society. And again, demand will drive up the need for supply. And that is how we begin to move the needle. Absolutely. We got to start reshaping policy and making sure- Can I sure add something to that really quickly, Shanti? Um, you know, you all know I worked at Morehouse School of Medicine for seven years and in the Office of Counseling Services, but of course I had the opportunities just to, to work with all the different uh, departments uh, and offices there at the school, and of course with admissions and the pipeline programs. Uh, one thing I can know and, um, in terms of the different studies that they had done and just kind of identifying where their students were coming from, uh, they actually had to create pipeline programs beginning in the second and third grade, you know, for young black kids just to be able to generate a level of interest in science. So even before they can really introduce them to medicine and how the impact of mental health and, and physical health, et cetera, you know, just generating an interest in science was such a difficult thing. So their pipeline program started at a very early age just to have that continuation and that longitudinal support for them to go all the way through high school and have to navigate all the different social issues that every black child does. And then having to have the resources to go to college, you know, and really having a vision. You know, we still have a lot of young black folks who are the first graduates in their families, you know, from college, which is definitely admirable, but it just shows exactly the reality of where we're at as a culture and as a community. Um, and then also, uh, once they get into medical school, I think that, you know, and I don't want to put any any bad wrong statistics out, but you know, the number of uh, black male students that were actually born here in America that were admitted every single year, and there was a huge effort, you know, to try to find these young men were very few and far between. And so even as a social scientist, I kind of look at, you know, uh, societal trends in, in historical context, and we can see how things like the school to prison pipeline, now the, the after effect is coming to fruition. And we look for, you know, where are all the professional black men, you know, where are all the, the, the respect, you know, where, what happened? We really have kind of just kind of swept that period under the rug. Um, you know, representation has become the new thing as opposed to paying attention to the, the data and the actual reality of, of what our community is facing. So um, that adds a little bit of detail to it too, in terms of how can we generate, you know, a new generation of young folks is so many different areas, but it does start at a very young age for our people. Yes, it does. K through 12, more federal funding, policy changes, 
educating everybody that mental health is everything and everywhere. And if we don't have it, we can't be successful in our communities. We can't do what we need to do in our homes. It affects the bottom lines. That's why now I do a lot of work with corporations, companies that started hiring me to come talk to their staff. And I always bring on my clinicians so we can all catch a check up, you know, as we continue to, you know, feed our families and educate the communities. But if, if you know, we have a unique opportunity and someone mentioned that the black agenda is a hot topic with the new administration. And, you know, we certainly are going to be, you know, making sure that we reach out and do our part um, of trying to pull in some more dollars so we can help, you know, our babies and, and our families and get more money into our communities. Now is the time, no matter what you're doing, we got to strike while the iron is hot. If you're a clinician, if you're an educator, if you're a counselor, you know, if you're not licensed, but you do the work and you're passionate about it, like now is the time, don't give up. Keep that fire burning, keep that passion going. Um, like I mentioned earlier, DE&I is everywhere now. So these companies want to be more diverse. And so we got to make sure that mental health is a part of this conversation when you're talking to these DE&I experts. Um, so it's just so much work that has to be done, that has to be done. And so I know I'm pumped up, I'm excited. And you know, on behalf of Silence of Shame and, and my company, Yeah Wellness, we're going to keep this flame going. And I want to take a few questions from um, from our virtual audience. One is, um, can you speak to the socioeconomic and mental impact of the pandemic on our communities with Black and Brown dying, Black and Brown families dying and being destroyed by this health crisis? I don't know who would want to take that um, question, but feel free to jump in. Can you read it again? Um, yeah, sure. Can you speak to socioeconomic and, and the mental impact of the pandemic on our communities with black and brown people dying and being destroyed by this health crisis? COVID was just an opportunity to have the curtain pulled back. The reason it's hitting black and brown communities so tough is because those disparities were there all the time. They just were not highlighted. And now when something like this hits, it's highlighted. Now we can see that the access to care is off. We can see that the opportunity to social distance when you have to go to work to keep the lights on is off. We learned that having access to running water and healthy running water um, is something that is a privilege for some because some don't have access to that. So it was really just COVID was an, an opportunity for the curtain to be pulled back and for us to really be called to task to acknowledge what was there all the time. And then again, take the extra step to look at how history contributes to why those disparities are there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Thank you. I'm going to take this next question. I'm going to try to run through some of them so we can get to a lot of questions. Can you offer any words of advice or encouragement for those that may be interesting, interested in pursuing a uh, doctoral studies program in mental health? Dr. Gay, you want to take that? Oh yeah. Um, so I will say that anyone that is pursuing a doctoral degree, um, you will earn it, right? Um, but it's you know you have to understand that you know the bigger cause is what drives you. You know if you are, you know you have to have to have to be very passionate about this work. Um, you have to you know really kind of hone your skills and, and understand different techniques so that you can process and be able to help individuals. Um, a lot of the cases that come across our desk, you know, can be very traumatic. You know, it can literally induce some uh, memories that you may have packed away. It can remind you of some per personal experiences. So, you know, in terms of motivation and encouragement, um, you know, find your niche, find your lane, you know, understand what your passion is, figure out what drives you, 
you know, and just create a lifelong commitment to this. Um, you know, it's not just sitting in counseling sessions. You know, like I said, psychology is different from psychiatry, which is different from psychotherapy. And so there's so many different ways where we can have impact. Um, some people actually are licensed therapists and they just go around and just do talks and conversations, right? That's impact. Some do uh, mental health research on the public health level. That's impact. Uh, some are really good on social media. That is impact. So it's really about, you know, what you are very skilled at and then how you can, can package that with your training and your education in graduate school. Um, and then definitely seek funding as well. There are a lot of companies that will pay for you to get your doctoral degree. So don't pay out of pocket if you don't have to. And if I could add to that really quickly, um, find a tribe. You know, when you get into the classroom, depending on what school you're going to, you might, might be one, if not the only person of color and to persevere. Like I remember moments where I was finishing my doctoral program and I was doing my research on black women and mental health and had mentors, you know, professors, good meaning people who were not black saying, well, why, why, why do you have to focus on this kind of research? And you're such a skilled researcher, you know, if you went in this direction and, and it was because I didn't see it, it didn't exist. I wanted to know more about it. Um, I wanted to add to the research that was there because it was so few and far between. And I can tell you the year I graduated nationally, because I use this statistic in a presentation I do, is that maybe 3% of the PhDs that were awarded in the United States that year went to black women. So the numbers are low. And I can tell you directly what helped me were specific intentional programs that focused on supporting women of color um, in graduate programs. And it was my tribe. It, it was a tribe of other black women who were pursuing their education, getting their PhDs, and we could all come together and push each other to study, push each other to write, um, help us help, you know, support each other in preparing exams co-present at conferences, co-author um, articles, um, build ourselves a, a, an entire community where we could push ourselves through. Because at any moment in time, you might go, oh, you know what? This is not even worth it. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to finish That's this right. right now, right? And then you've got that other woman on the side, a member of your tribe. It's like, oh yeah, not today. What you're going to do is you're going to finish and you're going to go get some help. You might need to go get a counselor. You might need to do all these other things, but get yourself a tribe. Because I can tell you right now, when I say 3% graduated that year, I know so many. And when you get into that community, it's such a small community and I can celebrate all of them for making the strides that they're doing. And Dr. Vaughn talked about impact. Um, I can tell you off the top of my head, like I'm a researcher, professor who started a nonprofit. There are so many other women that I graduated with or who graduated within the you know three to five years of me who did the same thing. They went in their field, they're doing the research, they're making sure that melanin and black voices and black presence are in the research that they're doing. And then they went and started organizations and companies and things that are doing the work. So the impact is great. Um, so if you're gonna do this, just know it's not gonna be easy. It's a lot of work. Know that you're going to experience all sorts of microaggressions, especially if you're pursuing your degree in, in environments that are not the healthiest. Um, and that tribe can make all the difference. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Richardson. We're getting short on time. If, if I'm gonna run through these questions and if you guys could literally try to just give a quick answer or point the, um, the virtual viewer to somewhere where they can get the information. Um, what type of employment is available for a student in their master's program in clinical mental health um, before they actually get their licensure uh, exam? Anybody can take that quickly? 
Well, it depends on the city. Uh, well, not the city, but it depends on the state. Every state is different in terms of licensure. And if you are looking to get clinical hours, you know, you can look at doing a lot of times programs like Medicaid programs, because a lot of folks go through those programs to become what's called STs or supervisees in training, where you can actually start to achieve your clinical hours working under a licensed professional. So if you're not looking at doing something like that, you can look at working in a nonprofit. You can look at working inside of an organization doing research. What I always tell people is chase the passion, not the paper, because you don't know what's going to happen and how long it's going to take you to get there. But you can be making impact in the community that you're in right now. So go ahead and use that as an opportunity to test out different type of work, work in different types of organizations to make sure that you know where you want to land once you actually get your degree. Thank you, Spirit. Can you share what is the best way to get young adults 12 through 18 engaged in the conversation? I know that's a, a loaded one right there, a loaded question. But yeah, that's, that's a hard one, you know, because that's that age, that's the developmental age to where, you know, teens don't want to hear anything that their parents are saying. They think they have everything under control and they are going through rapid hormonal development. Um, I think groups, you know, groups, uh, teen groups, getting them to be able to talk, you know, and guided conversation amongst one another, um, which creates some, what helps teach them emotional intelligence. Um, you know, it puts them in a space to where they're able to talk in their language and be able to receive and give their own experiences. Um, working, I've worked with a number of teenagers in, in 2020 and this pandemic hit them extremely hard. Very, very, very hard. Um, think back when we were teenagers, you know, being in high school, our socialization, that was everything, you know, and then having to be taken from that and literally being thrown in the home. So now they're spending more time with their siblings and their parents than they ever had before wasn't a good experience for them. So I think getting them around one another in a virtual space, um, there are a lot of team groups. Uh, again, you kind of have to just seek out through uh, different avenues with different practitioners that are uh, facilitating those. But I think that is the best approach to get them to be actually to uh, join the conversation. And last question, I'm gonna let everybody tell um, the audience how they can find you. Can you suggest a good article or resource to give um, black people who are unaware RE Mental Health in the Black Community that discuss some of the stuff that we talked about today. Any books or articles or, you know, certainly I know you can go on Silence of Shame. We have a lot of articles, but we'll, we'll start with you, Dr. Gay, and then give information on how people can stay connected or reach you uh, within your practice. Okay, absolutely. So um, definitely if any of my former students are on the call right now, they'll probably crack a smile because they know that my go-to resource with a lot of this stuff is uh, Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, an absolutely phenomenal book that I think that every Black person should have on their shelves, kind of like how uh, Roots was on the shelf, on the bookshelf back when we were kids. Uh, I definitely just, uh, you know, advise everyone get this copy. And, and to be honest with you, it will take you a while to read through it because it's a very emotionally moving book. Uh, so Medical Apartheid is a really good resource for those that are in the field. Um, if you want to be able to keep in contact with me, you can follow me on Instagram at the ATL LPC. That's at the ATL LPC. And also you can uh, visit my website at www.holisticatlanta.com. Or if you are ready to begin services, you can send us an email to referral at holisticatlanta.com. And we'll be waiting for you. Thank you, Dr. Gay. Uh, Dr. Richardson? Sure, absolutely. Um, we mentioned the John Metzl book earlier. Um, there's another book by Jones and Shorter Gooding um, called Shifting, and that focuses on Black women um, 
navigating what they call, um, it's almost like taking the W.E.B. Du Bois uh, concept of double consciousness and applying it into the lived experiences of Black women who they essentially deem are living a double life. That's another great book. Um, and then there's another book um, titled just Black Women in Mental Health. And that was edited by a professor named Dr. Stephanie Evans, who is actually publishing a book next month that focuses on yoga and resilience in the Black community. So she's doing a lot of great work in that area. So any of those books can be found on Amazon. They're great resources just to jumpstart your knowledge and understanding of Black mental health. And Shanti, as always, thank you for having us here. Um, you can find out no, uh, more about No More Martyrs by visiting our website, which is just nomoremartyrs.org. You can follow us on social media and look out for our upcoming events. We host a monthly virtual support group for Black women. Um, and that takes place the third Thursday of every month. You can find that on our website. We have our conference coming up. We have some books that we're putting together. Um, so yeah, just, and then we also provide trainings for licensed mental health professionals. So the same thing I was talking about in regards to being able to be trained in culturally responsive care, um, we, we offer those types of trainings um, and provide CEUs to professionals. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Richardson. And Spirit. Yeah, you know, I was going to say we live in a technological age unlike any other, right? So just in sitting here, I literally did a keyword search, racism in mental health. 0.5 seconds, 82,700,000 results, hmm. right? So if we don't know it, it's because we're not interested at this point. And many of those, you go and look at those scholarly articles, you can see some of the more prominent current research and go all the way back. I just encourage you to be passionate about it. Ask the questions. There's so much I hope that we, we didn't even scratch the surface. So I just hope you heard some things today that had you like, wait, what? Huh? to recognize that this is stuff that's not 400 years ago. This is stuff right now. This is stuff that your parents and your grandparents and you dealt with and are dealing with and you don't even realize it, okay? So just really be encouraged. The information is out there. Seek it out. If you want to find me, of course, I'm Talk to Spirit Everywhere. I've got it in the text box all night long. It's Talk, the number two spirit everywhere. I heard somebody down there in the chat box say they're looking for a job in the ATL. If you're a clinician, I'm hiring. I'm always looking for great therapists. I'm always looking to mentor great therapists. I provide supervision. I provide all of those great things. So if you are passionate about this field, you have questions. I am probably one of the most accessible therapists that you know. I'm out here at least once a week having public chats. I mean, you know, I don't hide this. I need to give it away because I only got one body, one life, and I don't know how long the dash is. I need as many people to get everything I've been able to store in this brain as I can give away. So I am always here. I'm accessible to you guys. Hit me in my inbox. Hit me on the live Facebook chats on Friday at noon. Whatever you need, I got you. But let's continue to move the needle because mental health is real. We all have it. We are all suffering. Heal yourself first because you can't heal nobody if you are not healed. If you're a therapist, don't play games. Get in somebody's chair because you will do more harm to somebody trying to help somebody when you are not even well yourself. So let's hold each other accountable. Let's hold each other up. I love y'all. I love these panelists thank you guys all so happy to be a part of tonight so thank happy you. thank you mm -hmm. thank you thank you thank you and mm -hmm. i want to mention a book um a couple of uh, people that i know actually contributed to this book and it's called mind matters a resource guide to psychiatry for black communities it, it is such a good book 
Um, and there are just so many other good books out there. Dr. Jeter Robinson recently uh, released a book around grief and it really helps you through the grief process. So make sure you, it's A-J-I-T-A, Dr. Ajita Robinson, Ajita Robinson, rather. Just Google her, you can find the book. And shameless plug, my book has been re-released. If you want to learn about someone who had a lived experience, I talk about my experience. It's called Silencing My Shame. It's available on my website, um, shantidas.biz. Of course, you can find more resources on www.silenceofshame.com. We do have a podcast, as I mentioned, it's on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, over 40 episodes, y'all. So much information there. Go back and listen to it. When you're getting up and take, you know, getting dressed in the morning or in the car, taking the kids to school, you know, plug in your, your phone and, and listen to those podcast episodes. And we have some great digital content that's on our YouTube page on Silence of Shame TV. This panel will be on the Silence of Shame YouTube page. So just make sure that you're, you know, spreading this out um, into the community after today. Um, I want to mention again, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It'll be here before you know it. May mm -hmm. 5th is National Silence of Shame Day. So we're starting to get geared up for that. We're going to do a ton of more conversations and continue the work that we've been doing with so many wonderful organizations. And my um, my Instagram show, Yeah Wellness, uh, kicks back off next week. I interviewed a ton of celebrities during the pandemic talking about self-care and wellness in the Black community. I'll be interviewing Angela Yee from the Breakfast Club next week and a lot of more guests to come. So I'm really excited about that. But I just want to thank everyone for giving us time on your Thursday evening. You could be doing anything else. And I know the kids are probably trying to eat and the husband is calling you to come and do, you know, whatever, make food, hang out, chill, Netflix and chill, whatever it is. But y'all took the time to learn the history of mental health in the black community. And that's so important. So give yourselves a big round of applause. I cannot thank again, these kings and queens and queens and kings for their wealth of knowledge and information. You know, I love you all from the bottom of my heart. I am here day or night if y'all need me. And I don't say that lightly. Vaughn, you know how I feel about you. Nadia, you know how I feel about you. And Spirit, it goes without saying. When I met you, <laughs> and God put us in each other's life for a reason. And truly, truly. A mother of like seven or eight. Seven seven. Kids. Don't put another one, girl. You know he'd be trying. <laughs> Don't do it. Come on now. Seven is enough. But she always responds. I mean, always. And that that ain't nothing to God, you know, just blessing us and anointing us to do this work around mental health. So we yeah. thank you. I want to leave you with just a few more resources. If you are in need of finding a therapist, you can go to psychologytoday.com, therapyforblackgirls.com, therapy, therapyforblackmen.org, betterhelp.com, Talkspace or ThriveWorks or the Boris Henson, Boris L. Henson Foundation, which is Taraji P. Henson's foundation. And there's a really great meditation app called Liberate. It was founded um, by an African-American. So it deals with a lot of microaggressions and things in the workplace. So it's a really great meditation app out there. If you know someone that is um, threatening to harm themselves, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. If someone is in crisis and can't get to a therapist in the middle of the night, there's a texting service, the na um, national organization called the Crisis Text Line Organization. You can text the word silence to 741741. Again, text the word silence to 741741. There are community service boards in a lot of states and a lot of crisis intervention um, programs. If you have to, for whatever reasons, if you call the authorities on a loved one, don't just call the police. 
ask for a CIT trained officer, which is crisis in training. That is so important. Uh, it's just so much more we could do and say, but we hope you will continue to tune in to all the great um, content that we have coming up in 2021. I, I wish you guys peace and blessings and stay safe. We are still in a pandemic. Wear your mask, mask up y'all. ATL, act like you know, for the folks that are in the A, wear your mask, tell your mama, your, uh, your uncles, your cousins, mm -hmm. still wear your mask for your mental and your physical health, please. And just take care of yourselves and, and be well, kings and queens. We love you and we thank you and we salute you. Good night.